May the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you please be seated? At some point in life, all of us have to deal with the reality of unmet expectations. Maybe it was the perfect vacation you planned that turned into a logistical nightmare. Maybe it was the perfect family Christmas dinner that devolved into the typical Christmas family dinner. As a sports fan, I often encounter unmet expectations as the teams that I cheer for have the audacity to consistently lose the games that I believe that they should win. Unmet expectations are a part of life. They even happen within our faith and the life of our church. You make a faithful decision and you expect everything to go well. No, no hang-ups, no hiccups, no roadblocks or barriers, just blessing all day, every day. Then you wake up one day and you're facing challenge, you're, you're facing difficulty, and it, it turns out that the world, the flesh, and the devil still hate the gospel. And so the faithful choice often leads to challenge rather than easier days. The blessings come, but just not how we expected to or when we expected them to come. And so we wrestle with questions. We deal with the reality of unmet expectations. And that period of wrestling is where we find John the Baptist this morning. As we heard last week, John has done the faithful thing. He's done what he was called to do. He came and he proclaimed that Jesus was coming. Yet things have not gone the way John expected. He finds himself thrown into prison by an immoral king, and he is left wondering what it is that's happened. John here is learning the important lesson that all of us must learn at one point or another, that Jesus is truly the Messiah, the Savior of the world. But he is a different kind of Messiah than we expected. And to see that this morning, we're going to look at how Jesus confounds our expectations. But even while he confounds them, he confirms his identity. And he reveals the saving work he is going to do. So let's dive into Matthew 11 and ask how it is that Jesus is confounding our expectations. And we really see it here in John's dilemma. John is in prison, and he's hearing about all these things that Jesus is doing. Jesus is preaching. He's healing. He's welcoming the outcast and the sinner. John hears about all of this, and he's confused. This is not what he expected. Remember Matthew 3 from last week. John is expecting fire. He's expecting judgment and victory over the enemies of God. Yet here is faithful John sitting in prison while the enemies of God are still walking around as free as the day they were born. It's no wonder then that John's sitting there kind of wondering, like, what's going on here, Jesus? When are you going to start acting like you're supposed to? 
And so he sends his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? That's what happens when our expectations don't get met. We start to ask questions about those things that we were utterly convinced of just days before. Think about maybe perhaps people you know who were raised in the church, but at some point the church did not act like the church should or how they expected the church should, and so they walked away. Now, whether or not the church acted rightly in those situations is not really the issue here this morning, and I'm not commenting on that specifically. The point here is more about that person who believed that the church should act a certain way or that Jesus should be a certain way. And then when they find out that that wasn't quite the case, when they have their expectations confounded, they walk away. Unmet expectations can do that. Even those of us who have not walked away, we can have moments when we feel a little bit like John the Baptist. Where we're saying to Jesus, I, I think I've made faithful choices. I think I've been following you the way I'm supposed to. But the outcome and the process, it has not at all been what I anticipated it being. And that can bring some to even ask, is this really worth it? I get that question from a lot of people. I get that question from non-believers all the time. Is it, is it actually really worth doing all that? Is it really worth following Jesus? I get that from people who look at Anik and what we've been through, through the lawsuits and the building losses and the money losses and all of it. And they ask, is that really worth it? Couldn't you have just been just as happy where you were? Is it really worth making the faithful choice? How would you answer that? I mean, if your expectations haven't been met, whether it's by, by the church, whether it's by Anik and what we've gone through, whether it's by your own individual life and faith, how would you answer that? What do we do when our expectations are not met? When following Jesus isn't quite what we thought it was going to be. When those doubts begin to creep into our hearts about even the faithful decisions that we've made, what do we do with that? answer those questions. On situations like this, John actually stands as an example to emulate. He's sitting there in prison wondering if what he believed about Jesus was right at all. What does he do with it? He doesn't stew in his frustration or his doubt, but rather, as he's able, since he's locked in a prison, he brings his doubt to Jesus. He's wondering, have I actually been following the right guy? And so he investigates. He pursues Jesus. Is that what you would do with your doubts? When those moments of doubt come, when you begin to wonder about the faith and if following Jesus is actually worth it, do you bring those questions to the one who can actually answer them? Or do you sit in your prison of doubt? And let the walls start closing in around you. Would you be willing to consider for a moment that maybe things aren't going the way that we expected? Not because of any 
unfaithfulness or unwillingness or inability on his part. But because we got our expectations wrong in the first place. Have we maybe decided for Jesus how he was supposed to act? Or would you be willing, even just for a moment, to doubt your doubts? To put more faith in Jesus and who he said he is than the faith that you're putting in your doubt? Would you be willing to readjust your expectations or allow him to readjust them for you? What do you do when your expectations are not met? Would you too be willing to pursue Jesus in those moments? Because here's the truth, friends. When we seek Jesus, we find him. It's a promise he's made. When we bring our doubts and our questioning to him, he confirms who he is. Because that's ultimately what we're doing when we're doubting him, when we're questioning him. That's what John is questioning him. It's, we're questioning who he is. John is asking him, are you really who I thought you were? That's what our doubts bring to us. Is Jesus really who we thought he was? And when we bring that question to Jesus, we get an answer. John certainly did. Without saying the words explicitly, Jesus tells John through his disciples, I may not be exactly who you expected me to be, but I am most certainly the Messiah. He is the one who was to come. He is the one who came to save and to deliver, and he shows it by how he answers this question. He tells John's disciples, go and tell John what you see and hear. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. John expected judgment. But Jesus gives clear evidence that he is the Christ by pointing to his works of mercy. John wasn't wrong. Jesus will come again to judge the living and the dead. John wasn't wrong. He just had his timing wrong. Before that time of judgment comes, Jesus reveals who he is by showing mercy. Because that's who our God is. He is the holy and righteous one, and he is also the God who always delights in showing mercy. Both of those things are true about him. They are not in conflict or competition. That is the picture of our God. In his response to this question, this faithful, pursuing question, Jesus points to his works of mercy, but that's not all he does. Jesus confirms his identity in his works, but also by pointing to the word of God. Specifically, he points to two prophecies from Isaiah. The first is in Isaiah 35, where we read about the work of God when he comes. We read this, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. 
Then shall the lame man leap leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. That sounds a lot like the evidence that Jesus gave to John's disciples, doesn't it? Nearly word for word, right? He's pointing to the word of God, how he fulfills it. And that's not all. Not just those works of mercy. He's also referencing Isaiah 61.1. We read there, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Sounds a lot like what Jesus said, doesn't it? Sounds a lot like what Jesus has done, doesn't it? When asked if he is really the Messiah, Jesus shows that everything he has been doing is the fulfillment of what the Messiah would do. Just as Isaiah prophesied, when Messiah appears, the result is mercy, it's healing, it's joy and life and peace. It is the reversal of all that has plagued us since the fall. And it is those things that Jesus brought, he inaugurated when he came. And it is those things that he will bring to consummation when he comes again. It is those things that those who faithfully wait upon him can expect with joy when he comes again. The place where peace and life and joy are not the abnormal things we seem to find in this world, but constant, permanent realities. In this way, John or Jesus quells John's doubts by telling him that both his works, the works that he came to do and was doing, as well as the word of God itself, answer all of John's questions with a resounding yes. Jesus is, in fact, who he claims to be. He is who the Bible tells us he is, and there is no other. He is the Lord. There is no other. In fact, John's own existence is evidence of who Jesus is. Jesus teaches the crowds in verses 7 through 15 That John is the Elijah figure who is to come to prepare the way of the Lord. He is the voice crying out that the Lord is coming. He is the one who was prophesied about Malachi 3. The one who would be sent by God to make way for the appearance of God himself shortly thereafter. That's what Malachi 3 teaches us. And that's what Jesus is pointing to. Tells us a little bit about who Jesus is, doesn't it? If John is the fulfillment of that, if he is the one who who came to proclaim the way of the Lord, to make ready the way of God himself, well, who is Jesus then? This is what Jesus does when we bring our questions to him, when we bring our unmet expectations to him. He shows us who he is, that he is Lord and there is no other, that he is God himself come among us. In the face of our doubts, we turn back to him. We do what John did. We ask him, Lord, show me who you are. Remind me from your word who you are. Remind me from the work that you've done on my behalf. Remind me of the cross where you died for me and the 
empty tomb where you rose for me. Remind me of the manger in the virgin's womb when you came for me. Remind me how in your word you tell me that the Lord, the Father, did not send you into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through you. We pray that our God would replace our doubt and our fear and would replace that with assurance and peace and the reminder of who he is and his presence with us. Would we be willing to do that with our doubts? To doubt our doubts and have more faith in Jesus? Jesus confounds our expectations. But when we bring our doubt and our false expectations to him, he confirms who he is. And then he reveals the saving work he has done and will do. I love in this passage that though John brings questions, though he has doubts in this moment, Jesus never slags him for it. He doesn't go after John. What's wrong with you, John? What are you doing questioning me? No. In fact, he praises John. He says some pretty incredible things about him here. Things that are absolutely remarkable and, and, to be honest, a little confusing. Verse 11, he says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Okay, hang on. How on earth can someone be the greatest and not the greatest at the same time? Jesus likes to do this sort of thing, doesn't he? What's the difference here? How is this possible? Well, the key is the location. John is missing something at this point that those in the kingdom of heaven have. One commentator stated, to be in that kingdom, the kingdom of God, even as the least, is to be greater than the great man who proclaimed its coming, but yet remains outside of it. At this point in redemptive history, John is outside of the kingdom of heaven because he could not be inside the kingdom of heaven. The work that was necessary to open wide the gates has not happened yet. John was not wrong in expecting judgment. He was wrong in his timing. Jesus' first appearance on earth was not to judge the living and the dead. It was to show mercy. And he did that chiefly through the cross. John expected judgment. What he didn't expect was that judgment would fall on Jesus first. We are told in that prophecy in Isaiah 35 that God would come with vengeance, that he would come to deal with the wrongs of the world and the sin committed against him, and he did that. We are also told that he would come with recompense, he would come to make amends for the harm of sin, that he would come to pay the price, and he did that. Judgment had to come, but first... It had to come upon Jesus. It's the expectation that John, nor anyone else, ever had. 
Jesus had to come and take the judgment of sin upon himself so that he could pay the price for sin, so that the kingdom of heaven could be open to all who by his grace have been gathered to him. That was the work of mercy that he had to come to do. It is the work of grace that he had to come to do. It is the work that he is revealing to John in answering his question. He had to open the kingdom of heaven, and that is what he has done in his death and resurrection. That is what he has done by taking the judgment of God upon himself, the judgment that we could never bear. And it is why the least in the kingdom is greater than any outside of it. To be in that kingdom is to be greater than even the greatest that you could think of who are not in it. John couldn't be in the kingdom yet. Because that work had not yet been done. Jesus here is drawing a stark contrast for us so that we can understand just how great what he is offering to us is. And for us to see that where we are located hinges upon him. Verse 6, Jesus says something really interesting here. It's kind of, it seems almost out of place. When he responds to John's disciples, he talks about all that he has done, and then he concludes with, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. He's been talking about all these works of mercy, and then he comes back with, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. What, what, why that? He's given all this evidence, and then he concludes, not with necessarily a statement about him, but how people respond to him. Well, what he's telling us is that while all of those amazing works are just that, they are amazing, and they are evidence of who he is, the place of true blessing is not found in the works, but found in the one who does them. They're found in him. To be offended by Jesus is to push him away. To be offended by Jesus is to reject him, to choose the world over him. And so to have genuine blessing is to be with him. You can have all the other good you want, but if you don't have him, you don't have genuine blessing. Because being with him is being with God himself. It's being in his kingdom. It all hinges on Jesus. When you ask the question, are you the one to come? Are you really the one who you say you are, Jesus? How do you answer that? Do you believe he is who he says he is? Even when your expectations are not met. It is the question of all questions. And yes, even the greatest among us, as John shows us, will have our moments of doubt. Yet in bringing our doubt to Jesus, we find he is able and willing to confirm who he is and to show us the work he has done and will do for us. Friends, the truth is, Jesus will confound your expectations. And thanks be to God, he does. Because it's our expectations that are completely out of whack. The fact that Jesus is not the Savior of our design or choosing is a blessing to us 
Because we never would have come up with a Savior who needed to bear the wrath of God and die for us. And so if things had gone the way we expected, the way we would have designed or chose, we would still be lost in all of our futile attempts at self-justification and self-preservation. Yet he is the Savior we need. He is the Savior we need to have come to reverse all of the curse, all of the result of the fall, so that when he comes again in the way that John expected and described, and that will happen, we who are in him need not fear, but can rejoice at his appearing. We can have joy at the wonder it is to see our Lord face to face. When we give ourselves over to Jesus, we will find that, yeah, there's going to be days that don't go our way or days that didn't go as we planned or expected. And we will have those days where other people are looking at us and wondering, how is all that worth it? Those days will come. But when we give ourselves over to him, we find that the answer to all of our questions find their yes in him. That he really is who he says he is. And following him is more worth it than anything else in this world. For in him are all the blessings of the Father found. And through him and him alone, we are blessed with life in the presence of God in his kingdom for all eternity. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.